If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 4. If you don't, most of what we'll talk about, most of the passages will be on the screen today, and so you'll be able to follow along there. And we are in the midst of the second week of a series called The Grave Robber, and this is a series that's going to take us all the way to Easter. And the idea is that we're looking at the miraculous things that Jesus did in the book of John. We started last week. We started with an amazing miracle he did when he showed up at a wedding in Cana. And as he's there, they run out of wine. And Jesus takes these six vats and takes the water out and then goes back to the well. And as he does, it becomes wine in the midst of the party. Today, we're going to kind of move forward in that. But I wanted to kind of start in a similar way to what we did last week. Last week, we started with a little presidential history. And I know that you come to church excited about presidential history. History, but we're going to do one more this week. All right. I can't guarantee next week, but tell me who this president is. Abraham Lincoln. All right. Sharp on the, by the way, we, we do need a few extra prayers for some middle schoolers in the room today who were part of about 25 middle school kids that were here last night for a lock in and sleep was minimal to non-existent. So, all right. So who is this again? Tell me again. Abraham Lincoln, all right? Lincoln is a fascinating American president. Many consider him to be the greatest. Most consider him, if not the, to be one of the greatest presidents of all time. Uh, Lots of amazing things. Emancipation Proclamation, holding the Union together in the midst of the great Civil War. But most of you know Lincoln met an untimely death. On April 14th, 1865, only five days after Robert E. Lee had surrendered for the South in the war against uh, the states, Abraham Lincoln was watching a performance, a play called Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington. There was a guy named John Wilkes Booth who snuck in and uh, being an actor himself knew the play well and knew there would be a certain point in the play when uh, laughter would erupt. And as laughter erupted, John Wilkes Booth snuck in and shot the president. Now, one of the people that ran to Lincoln's aid, who was not with him that night, although he was probably supposed to be is this man anybody know who that is this is his son robert todd lincoln now robert todd lincoln is the president's son and was supposed to be with his dad probably that night but was not and rushed to his dad's side in the midst of those moments after ford's theater when life was ebbing away now here's the thing that's interesting about robert todd lincoln not a lot of people know much about him this is the oldest son of of Abraham Lincoln and his wife, and he went on to have a very um, illustrious political career as well. Now, he never made it to president or vice president, but he was secretary of war. And here's kind of a couple of interesting footnotes in history about Robert Todd Lincoln. Robert Todd Lincoln was at the assassinations of the next two presidents that were assassinated. In fact, he was the Secretary of War for James Garfield on July 2nd, 1891, when Garfield was shot. And at a special invitation of the president, he was at a Pan Am exposition when William McKinley was shot and killed. Robert Todd Lincoln's interesting footnotes in history don't stop there. In fact, just a few months before his dad was assassinated, he was on a a train, um, he was getting ready to board a train, and he was in a train station, and he was standing on the edge of the tracks, and people started crowding in around and pushing and shoving, and he fell over into the track. And he says in a 
letter that he wrote later, as he was falling into the track, he could hear the train coming, and all of a sudden he felt someone grab the back of his neck and yank him back. This is the man that grabbed him and yanked him back. Anybody know that guy? It is Edwin Booth, brother of James Wilkes Booth. Now, here's the question with all that. I mean, isn't that amazing kind of stuff all around his life? Some of you are like, no, not really. That was history. I don't like history, all right? You hear about these just amazing things that happen. And the question that comes up is this great question. Is it coincidence or is it providence? Is it just random series of events somehow lining up together or is there a hand behind it that is guiding the process? Now, it's easy to kind of kind of take one side or the other depending on life circumstances. But really, when you think about even like um, Robert Tom Lincoln's life, you, you ask this question, is it coincidence or providence? And it becomes a great debate, almost as great a debate as which is better, dogs or cats? Right? How many of you are dog people? Let me see the right people's hands. There we go. How many people are cat people? Let me see all you that two hands don't count twice. All right. I mean, look at this picture. How how can you take this over that? Right? Grumpy cat. All right. Or the other great debate, maybe do you prefer chocolate or vanilla? Now, the type is non-negotiable. Those that love Jesus, we eat bluebell ice cream. But... Whether you want chocolate or vanilla. How many of you are chocolate people? How many of you are vanilla people? All right. We're not, we're not taking the strawberry people into consideration. Ruins the illustration. All right. We're just doing two. Or the great debate that has raged online for the last couple of days. What color is this dress? All right. How many of you are white and gold people? Good, you're wrong. How many of you are blue and black people? There we go. (laughs) All right. How many of you had no clue about this until you just walked, just saw it here? All right. So, Rick, what do you see? Rick, what do you see? All right, we'll work on colors later, Rick. All right. (laughs) So, (laughs) blue and black, or anyways, y'all know it's destroyed the Internet for the last couple of days. So here's the question. I gotta rein you back in now. Coincidence or providence? Is life life full of just coincidences, happenstances, things that just kind of occur? Or could there be someone behind the scenes? Making each step possible, sequencing the steps so that they line up, doing things so that divine appointments take place? Are we blazing our own trail and making our own choices and nothing really is directing our path? Or is there a choreographer making sure everything happens in a certain way? Now the truth is that's a really easy question to answer until you get in a really difficult circumstance of life. Well, did God cause that to happen? Did God send that to happen? Many of us, I think, if you're here today, many of you would say, no, I think that there's a hand behind it. There's, a, there's somebody kind of orchestrating events. There are too many things in my life that I see that can only be explained by the presence of God leading me to a place. And then it becomes difficult when we 
face a difficult circumstance in our life. But what about that? Coincidence or providence? You know, the truth is, Scripture teaches us that the answer to that is that there is one behind the scenes orchestrating our steps, determining our paths. Now, you say, well, does that mean that God caused John Wilkes Booth to walk into Ford's Theater that night? I don't believe that either. I think that he also gave us free will that determines some of what happens. But God can always redeem the messes we make. I think about the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph, right? up and down roller coaster life of Joseph and he gets to the end and his brothers come back and he could have easily um, <laughs> prosecuted them. He could have held it over them, but he doesn't. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Even when you, you get to Romans chapter eight twenty eight, one of the most um, quoted and misused verses in scripture, it doesn't say that everything happens in our life is good. What it says is God works together all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. It says that God orchestrates the events of our lives, even the mess-ups and the things that people do to us, things that we do to ourselves. He can orchestrate it, provide it, choreograph it, so that it all turns out beautiful in the end. Last week we talked about God having control over the minutest of details, the molecular structure of water changed to the molecular structure of wine. But today we're going to talk about bigger ideas than that. Not just that God has control over the most minute details of life, but he also has control and is even outside of things that limit us. Things like space and time. Here's what I know. Even though our world is advanced in amazing ways, we cannot speed up or slow down time and I cannot be in two places at once. Physically, I am only allowed to be in one place, and I am limited by the time that I have. But God doesn't have those limits. And we're going to see in the second miracle, not only does God have power over space and time, but we're also going to understand that we must be ready for a divine appointment. When the choreographer has given us in providence something that has come into our path, and how we react to it determines what God does in and through our lives. Starting in chapter 4. Verse 43. Now, just to kind of give you an an update of where he's been, after he turned the water into wine, and if you weren't here last week, I know some of you, the snow got you. If you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go online to the website, fbcgillisle.com, and just click for the sermon tab and watch last week's uh, because it sets up the, the series. Last week he turned water into wine. Immediately after that, he went to the temple in Jerusalem. He turned over tables. He said, the way that you are doing worship is not the way God intended you to do worship. He goes in chapter 3 and talks to a leader of the Pharisees, a guy named Nicodemus. One of the most um, popular and most well-known verses in all of Scripture happens in that dialogue as he talks about what it takes to become a follower of Jesus, to be born again in that passage. And at the beginning of chapter 4, he leaves Nicodemus, this leader of the religious um, elite, And he goes through Samaria, a group of people that nobody that was Jewish wanted to have anything to do with. And he sits down at a well and talks to a woman who has had several husbands, is living with a man, is an outcast of society, and tells her about himself. And as a result, she becomes the first evangelist in the gospel, goes back and tells her people, and they come and accept Jesus as the Messiah for their people. And then it says this. He stays with them two days. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. We'll come back to that. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. He goes on to next verse. So he came again to Cana, right? He's back to where he started. He's back to where he turned water into wine. In Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, now just a little though, I know there are lots of geography in here. and Some of you are really not good at geography or don't like it. Cana and Capernaum are not the same place. Cana and Capernaum are about 20 miles apart. Now, that's not that far for us. Some of you drove 20 miles or about it to be here today. But for them, they didn't have vehicles, and 20 miles is a lot. Now, I know some of you are marathoners, and then the last time, just of your own free will, decided, hey, I'll just walk 20, 25 miles just for the fun of it. I haven't, and ever, all right? And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. We, oh, this is what we know. We don't know a whole lot about those official. We know from the word there, the word there means some kind of royal official, somebody that was in the king's um, court, somebody's in his cabinet, some kind of high-ranking official. Most people think this is a Jewish man who was in the King Herod's service. And here's what we know from that. He was in King Herod's service. He was a royal man. It means he had access to anything in life he wanted. And yet he has a need that his position can handle. His son is ill. If you live long enough on this life, you're going to encounter things that position and money and prestige and who your family is and who your friends are can't handle. The question is, what do you do then? Well, in the midst of this time, we hear in the next verse that this man hears that Jesus had come back. Now, by this time, the news of Jesus had spread pretty quickly. He he changed water into wine. He had done some stuff in Jerusalem. He turned the tables over. He had done some miraculous things. And so when he hears that Jesus said, come to Judea to Galilee, and this won't surprise any parent out there because he's heard this man might be able to do something. We don't have any evidence that Jesus had ever healed anybody, but he knew this man was different. He knew something was going on. And so he does whatever he can. He goes to him. He went to him. Those of you that have kids, you understand this. If there is something wrong with your kid and you know there is something that will solve it, you will do whatever it takes to get there. Amen? He goes to him and he asks him to come down. Now, just so you know that where they were was kind of up to go to where he was, to go to Capernaum, you were going to have to go down a hill. Just to let you know, that 20-mile trek he took was uphill just to get to Jesus. He says, come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, we've seen this play out. If you've been in church, you know Jesus usually responds to this really well. Well, Your faith is great, I'll come. Or your faith, your son is healed. There's this idea that Jesus usually accepts these requests very gracefully. In this one, there's a strange response. This is what he says. So Jesus said to him, unless you, this is my personal help for y'all, because the you there is plural, So he's not talking to the man, he's talking to the crowd. But unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now that's a strange thing to say to him. Can you heal my son? Well, unless you see stuff, you won't believe. The official says, I don't care. Just come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It goes on to tell us that on his way down, 
His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that the seventh hour was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Y'all didn't have the reaction that they would have had. Y'all just like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. 20 miles away, Jesus at 7th hour, which is about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, says something, and 20 miles away, at the exact same moment, the kid gets better. Thank you. Somebody gave me a... What? What? It's one of those, all right? Y'all just look at me like, okay, let's go, come on. Alan, were you amen in the come on or get going, or were you amen in the... I don't know. I know you tried to help me. I didn't... That sounded like, y'all were just like, get going. Amen, get going. (laughs) The father knew that that was the hour when his son lived. This is what happens next. And he himself, that's the dad, that's the official, believed. And all his household believed. We talked last week that John says he writes all this stuff. He writes everything about the miracles and the signs that Jesus did for one purpose, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in Him. He does the sign and the guy believes. Now here's what's interesting. It said a few verses back that he believed Jesus' word and he went. But there seems to be this idea that he kind of believed then and then he really believes here. And we're going to talk about that difference in just a minute. Here's the question I want to ask. Because it seems like a pretty straightforward story. There's a man who's got a son that is in serious trouble. He comes to Jesus. Jesus gives this kind of strange quote and then says, okay, your son's healed and go. And almost dismissive. In fact, that command go is like, go, get out of the way now. Your son's fine. Go back. The dad goes back and he believes in Jesus and starts to follow him. It seems Pretty straightforward. But but here's the thing that I want to ask us, all right? Because here's what happened. This guy happened to be at the exact right place with the exact right person at the exact right time. If his child would have been sick sick 10 years earlier, Jesus isn't there. If the child would have been sick 10 years later, Jesus isn't there. But how he responded to it and the way he had to respond to it shows us some things about how we handle when God wants to do something in our lives. So three things really quickly from this story that I think for us helps us to understand how do we put ourselves in position to see God move? And here's the first one, and it is simply this. God steers moving ships. We have this thing downstairs that carries the chairs that we use at events. Anybody here ever moved that thing, a few of us? It is, this is a, I don't know if this is a word that's really good or not, the unwieldiest thing I've ever seen. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's got chairs everywhere and you move it. Here's what I tried to do one time. I was at a complete stop and I tried to turn the thing. It's lucky the church is still erect, that it's not been knocked down from banging into walls. But when you're driving it, although difficult, you can maneuver it. It's easier to turn something that's moving than it is something that's sitting still. Another example, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if y'all heard about this or not, but we had some ice here in the area. Anybody hear about that? Yeah? 
And our driveway gets very little sun and it's on the side and it is straight uphill. And we had decided after about three or four days of Susan and the kids being kind of locked in the house for a while that it was going to try to get them out. And so I, when it was, remember that day it was like two, like like literally two outside? That was the day I thought it'd be good to try to chip some ice out of the driveway. That was that was not a good idea. So I tried a little bit, got a little bit, and then I was going to go up the hill. And you know what I discovered? You got to get a, you got to get going before you get to the hill. Like I, I, eventually, I got it up on like the 48th try. It wasn't 48; it was eight. All right. And I felt like you remember when you were little and you were going to jump a fence, you'd like get as far back as you could get. And you run full force and you jump over. That's what I did in the car. I got as far back as I could get before going down the hill into certain death. And gun the thing up. And even I'm fishtailing up, I'm able to get up because of the momentum allows me to go. God works in people's lives that are already moving for him. The momentum is already there. He's going to do things for people that have already responded. Remember back to our guy, right? He hears Jesus is there. What does he do? Remember the verse? He went to him. He goes to him. God, we're reading this book right now as a staff called Jesus Continued by a guy named J.D. Greer. And it's a great book. I highly recommend it. In the midst of it, this is one of the names of his chapters is God steers moving ships. And what he says is that we have to be in a position of going after God with all that we have if God's going to be able to use us and do things in our lives that amaze and astound us and those around us. That he doesn't take people that are just like, God, I'm going to wait for you to show up before I do anything. In fact, he uses an example in the Old Testament of David who wanted to build God a house. David looked at his house. It was really nice. And he says, I want to build a house from God. And God says to David, I didn't ask you to build me a house. David says, I just want to do something. And God says, I didn't ask you to build me a house. But it tells us that God was pleased with his attitude for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because David was willing to sacrifice whatever he needed to do to work for God. This guy, 20 to 25 miles up a hill. And when I say a hill, I don't mean like a hill. I mean like a plateau. 20 to 25 miles straight up. He didn't care. He's got to get there. He's willing to do whatever it takes. And because of his attitude of just complete surrender, Jesus says, go. And he's like, okay. Can I tell you that some of you are waiting for God to do something in your life. You want God to do something. There's something in your marriage. There's something with your kids. There's something in your job. There's something in your finances. There's something with physically with you and you're asking and you're asking and you aren't already doing what God has already called you to do. And God looks down and says, when you start to show me that you have a heart of surrender and a heart that is willing to do whatever I ask, I will freely move in your life. Romans 12 tells us that we are to give our lives as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies holy and acceptable to God is your spiritual worship. God steers ships, people that are already moving. Here's a second thing that we see from this guy. Not only does he steer ships that are already moving, is that we must accept God on his terms. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Jesus did not do what the guy asked him to do. What did the guy ask him to do? To go with him. 
Come with me to my house. Come, Jesus. In fact, in fact, it tells us in the original language when you look at it, it says that he is begging and pleading, asking again and again and again. You got to come. You got to come. Jesus, come on now. I need you. Come on now. Like, come on. Come on. Like, it's like trying to get your kids out of the house. Come on now. Let's go. Let's get your coat. Let's go now. Let's go. Just over and over, Jesus, you got to come to my house. you got to heal him. In their day and time, the only way they had ever seen anybody heal anybody was to be present with them, putting their hands on them, having you know a presence in the room with them. And he says, I need you. I, I don't care what else you got going on. This is a little bit of the guy just says desperation. I don't care who else needs to be served. I need you to walk 25 miles with me down the hill in order to touch my son, in order that his fever might leave. If you can do that, that would be great. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to do what you want to do because that's not in my agenda. When I read this passage, sometimes I think to myself, how many times in my life have I offered up my life and my plan and my idea to God and said, if you would just bless that, everything would be cool. Hey, God, man, I think it'd be really, there's this job out there. I think it'd be really good if I got that job. So if you could just make that happen, if you could just bless that and make it happen, oh, man, everything would be great. Appreciate it. Goodbye. Talk to you tomorrow. Hey, God, I've got this five-year plan thing down, and if I'm going to make my five-year plan in year two, I've got to be at this place. And so if you could just make, do you know, just a string here or there, you, you control the cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't cost much to do that, just a little bit. I could get where I needed to be, and then I could do your plan. That's really my plan that I just want you to bless. When we were in seminary, and we're coming to the end of our seminary time, um, you know, the reason you go to seminary is because you think when you get out of seminary, you're going to do ministry. And so I remember we had this plan. Susan and I got married. We went on our honeymoon. We came back. She started work. And the plan was she worked three years, put me through school. I get a job at the end of that. That would be nice, right? You go to seven years of post-high school. You'd like to have a job when you come out. I'd, go to, I'd get a job. We'd start to have children. Susan could stay home with the kids. I'd have a job. We had it all planned out. It was awesome. In order to do that, I thought what would be really cool is if I could walk through the graduation line walk out of the graduation line, say hello to mom and dad, get in the car, drive to the job. That happened in mid-May. I said, in order for that to happen, I need to have interviews starting in February and March. God, if you could line up three or four places that I could interview with by May, February or March, I, I know that the people may not be looking, but that's the timing they want. And if that'd be great, that'd be good. And about that time, we thought we'd start having kids and things, they'd be thinking through all that. And it just seemed like we had a really great plan. In May, not a single church had called. Here's the thing that I forget to tell you at seminary is when you graduate in May, so are like 700 other people looking for places to pastor. And in May of that year, we was the first time we were told, uh, we don't think y'all can have kids. And suddenly, our plan is gone. I had my first interview with the church around 4th of July. Now, that doesn't sound like a long time between May and July, but when your wife has decided to go ahead and quit the job she had because we just have faith that God's going to do something, and you are working as a part-time assistant at a fine arts preschool, that's the only job you got? That's a long time. I look back now, and I see the foolishness of God. Here's my five-year plan. You go ahead and bless that, and we'll be okay. This guy comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, here's my plan. You come on with me. You take care of it. And Jesus is like, I don't have to go. I got something better in mind. When I look back now, I realize that if my plan had come to pass, I 
wouldn't be here because I wouldn't have gotten a job in Ripley. And if I wouldn't have been in Ripley, I wouldn't have been in a place that Larry Gilmore would have thought to tell Alan Searcy about here. And I just see God's plan in the midst of that. When I look back now, my plan was for a couple of kids and everything was good. I didn't have any idea God was going to bless us with four amazing kids. And I think about how many times in my life have I missed out on God's opportunities because I'm saying, here it is, God, this would be great if you could go ahead and do this. And sometimes I'm scared that he's given me that thing with something better in mind. The official says, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, go. I don't have to come down. You go. Trust God to do what's best and to do it the right way. Here's the last thing and then we're done. We must not treat Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus is the end. There's a strange thing that when I started looking at this passage earlier this week, it just wouldn't leave me and I didn't understand what was happening. And I think we've got it on the screen, the next verse. And this goes all the way back to the first verse we read. This is another geography lesson, so I'm going to give you a little geography, maybe help you, some of you on your trivia crack geography um, answers. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, just a quick question, okay? Where's Jesus from? He was born in Bethlehem, but that's not generally where he's considered from. He's from Jesus of Nazareth. Anybody have a clue what state or region Nazareth is in? Galilee. There you go. Good job. So here's what's crazy to me, okay? So after two days, he departs for Galilee. And Jesus himself had testified, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So this is what I expect. He's going to Galilee, Galilee's hometown. He's going to get there. They're going to reject him. Is that what happens? No, it says, so when he gets to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that seems kind of counteractive to what this said. So why in the world is that there? It's because of why they welcomed him. Look at the next verse that we're going to have up on the screen. Remember when he asked him to heal and Jesus says to y'all, to the Galileans, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here's what happens. In the story just before this, Jesus goes to a people that are hated by the Jews, that nobody likes, that everybody thinks is wrong in their worship of God. And he tells them about who he is. And immediately, without any miraculous signs or wonders. Now, some people would say the woman at the well, knowing her past was miraculous, and perhaps it was, but no physical healings, no no manifestations of his power like he had done in Galilee. He gets there, and he just tells them that he's the Messiah, and it tells us basically the whole town believed him. And Jesus comes back to Galilee, and he says to them, Listen, the people I was just with, the Samaritans that everybody hates and thinks is wrong, they accepted me for who I am, the Messiah, without having to see me do a bunch of stuff. You just want me as a magician. You just care about what I can do for you. You don't care about who I am. And what he's saying to them is, you just want the benefits without truly following me. You want an illusionist on stage that's going to give you something. You want somebody that's going to provide you with stuff and you don't have to worry about who they are. I tried to think of a modern parallel to this, and this is probably not really good, but it's close. Uh, Anybody ever heard the phrase gold digger? Right? What's a gold digger? Well, a gold digger, you might say, if you turn on the TV and there's a 75-year-old... really, really wealthy guy, tons of money, and suddenly he has married a 26-year-old blonde bombshell. 
And you say, that girl is just after his mind. Now, we don't know the true nature of their relationship. Maybe she loves him with all her heart. But the immediate thing is she just cares about his money. She doesn't care about him. She cares about what he can provide for her. It doesn't have to be a 75-year-old man and a 24-year-old girl. It could be a 75-year-old woman whose internet startup company major major money and she marries a 24-year-old stud beefcake. I mean, it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be that way, but you, you get the point. They're just in it for what they can get, not for the relationship. Jesus looked at these people and says, you are gold diggers. All you care about is what you can get, not about me. Can I tell you something? When it comes to seeing God move in your life, what Jesus is trying to teach them is you don't go after the miracle. You don't go after the unseen knowledge from God. You don't go after the miracle plan that he's going to give you. You go after him. You seek him. You worship him. You love him. And as you worship and seek and honor and do what he calls you to do, he will show up in ways that you can't explain in the midst of your life. But it's not in a vacuum. It's because you are devoted to him. And listen, the benefits are unbelievable. Sins forgiven, past erased, a lifetime with him and an eternity by his side. The benefits are unbelievable, but we're not in it for the benefits. We're in it for him. Jesus is saying to them, don't treat me as a way to get what you want. I am what you want. I am what you need. Maybe you're here today. And you've got real issues in your life. And you've been seeking an answer from the Lord and nothing seems to be there. But the truth is you haven't been actively pursuing what you know God's already called you to do. You're not willing to accept God's terms because you've got your own terms pretty well laid out. Or perhaps you're just looking for the benefits and don't want to have anything to do with the relationship. As we talk over the next few weeks, the miracles that are going to be performed are going to get harder and greater and more incomprehensible but the baseline for all of it is a people who are actively seeking to do what god's already told us and follow him with all our heart is that where you are today let's pray together